Well, this morning we will be finishing up our summer series on Christ and culture. And I'd like to start again by just reviewing the phrases that Pastor Andrew gave us last week in summary for these six weeks. The first is Scripture is all you need. Scripture is all you need. And you remember we've talked about the authority of God's Word and how it's essential that it be the foundation in us looking at any cultural issue. Week two, condemnation is what you deserve. And you remember we talked about total depravity, how sin has impacted every part of us, our thoughts, our words, our feelings, our actions. Sin has affected everything in the world around us. Week three, Common grace is what you have. And we talked about the grace that God shows both to us as believers, but also to those who are not believers. And specifically talking about some of the agencies of that common grace, being conscience, family, church, and government. Week four, justice is what you'll get. And if you remember week four, we talked about justice in light of God's character, looking at the character of God and how does that define for us true justice. Week five, faith is how we live. Faith is how we live. And if you remember from last week, we looked at the lives of those in both the Old and New Testament that were pursuing a relationship with God. And most of all, we looked at the life of Christ to see how could we see justice lived out in their lives. And then this week, week six, the summary phrase for you is gospel is what we display. And we'll be talking about that momentarily. As you could imagine, with a series on Christ and culture, over the last six weeks, a number of people have come up to me and asked questions like, well, are we going to talk about LGBTQ plus stuff or gender stuff? Or are we going to talk about, you know, the prosperity gospel or social media? Are we going to talk about all of the polarization in politics or identity politics? And, and the list could go on and on. But after six weeks, you can see we really didn't have enough time to hardly scratch the surface on talking about critical social justice or critical race theory. We barely just have skimmed over the top of it. But let me help you, uh, hopefully, by giving you six steps these six weeks and thinking about them as six steps of how you could look at any cultural issue that's happening now, 10 years from now, 50 years from now. I think these, these six steps would be helpful for you. This is all on the back of your handout, too, if you didn't notice. Um, but step one, start with God's Word as the authoritative foundation and source of wisdom. If we're going to look at cultural issues, we need to start by recognizing the authority of God's Word and the need for us to build our thinking on it. Okay. Step number two, recognize that every worldly philosophy or system is developed out of man's total depravity and as a result are intrinsically broken in some way. So if sin has impacted every area of us, every area of the world around us, then if we come up with some kind of worldly philosophy or system, something that's not taken directly from God's word, there's going to be some intrinsic problems with it. And just being aware of that as we begin to look at it. Step number three, analyze any ways that the agencies of common grace, again, conscience, family, church, and government, are being assaulted or have become dysfunctional or having failed in light of God's word. So looking at that cultural issue and how it intersects with those agencies of common grace to get some insight. 
Number four, discover how God's character defines the issue. And this is important because a lot of times we have a tendency to think that there's this this separate objective list of right and wrong or what's true that's kind of set apart from God and that even God has to be under that. But that is not the case. God's character defines what is true. Everything flows down from God. He's not submitting to anything else. It's just his nature that defines for us what's right and wrong. Number five. Consider the example set most of all by Jesus, but also by God's people, both in the Old and New Testaments, looking at how we can uh, see from Scripture how they've lived out their lives and what those things tell us about that particular cultural issue. And then step number six, commit yourself to living in a way that most fully displays the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right after we look at it, eventually we have to get to the point where we're committing ourselves to obedience and to live in a way that makes Christ known. And that's what we'll look at this morning. But before we jump into that topic, would you join me again for a word of prayer? Father, we come to you now and your word tells us that if we ask for wisdom, that you will give it. So Father, we ask that you would grant us wisdom this morning, that your spirit would speak to us the truth of your word. You would open our hearts to be able to receive it and that you would skillfully, as a surgeon, apply it in each of our lives. Father, what we want most of all is to be conformed to the image of your Son. We want to love Jesus as we should, and we want to reflect Jesus' love to those around us. So, Father, we pray that you take this time and you'd accomplish those goals in us for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, we talk, we'll be talking about the gospel displayed, and we'll be in the book of James, starting with James chapter 1, verse 27. And if you want to use one of the Bibles that's in the seat in front of you, you can find that on page 1011. 1011. That's 1011. Okay? And while you're flipping there, or, or apping there, or whatever you... you Whatever that verb would be to get there in an app, I don't know. Um, Anyway, while you're getting there, that's what I decided on the first service, I forgot. When you're getting there, let me give you a a brief background on the book of James. James was written by James, the brother of Jesus, not James the disciple, okay? It was written by James, the brother of Jesus. And we read in Acts and in Galatians that James is uh, considered one of the three pillars of the Jerusalem church. And so he was very foundational in the, the founding of the church, the church in Jerusalem. We also see that James is writing primarily to Jewish Christians that because of what's happening economically and politically have been dispersed, they've been scattered throughout Asia Minor. And so these, these Christians, these Jewish Christians that have been scattered abroad, basically, into other countries, other locations, they're struggling with poverty and oppression and persecution at the time. So just a little background on what's happening. So this morning as we come to this uh, passage, I'd like for us to notice four things. The first thing is God loves and cares for the needy, and so should we. God loves and cares for the needy, and so should we. Look at James 1.27. It reads, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 
See, throughout Scripture, we get a clear picture that God loves and cares for those who are in need, that his compassion and his mercy is overflowing to them. And there's a long list of Scriptures we could look at, which is also listed on the back of your handout, but there are a few that I want us to look at this morning, but maybe as you have time this week, you could read the others as you have time and, and just think further about this. Let's start, though, with Deuteronomy 10, 17 and 18. It reads, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Look at Psalm 68, verses 5 and 6. It reads, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. Proverbs 21, 13. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be heard. Isaiah 1, 16 and 17 says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Ezekiel 18, 7 through 9 says, If a man does not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry, covers the naked with a garment, does not lend at interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statues, keeps my rules by acting faithfully. He is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. Leviticus 19, 9 through 18. This is long, but I couldn't bring ourselves to not read it all. So since you can't leave just yet, let's just read it together, okay? Um, starting with verse 9, and we looked at this briefly last week too, but it has such a perfect picture of God's heart. It says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely. And so profane the name of the the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or, or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then we see Jesus in Matthew 25, and the passage about the sheep and the goats, he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. 
Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. You get the picture. And you'll see even more if you read the rest of those scriptures that God's heart of love and compassion overflows into the lives of those who are needy, those who are struggling. And so when it comes to James, and he has an opportunity here to say or to define what true religion is, what is it that really pleases God? What does real worship look like? It's not surprising that he reflects God's own heart when he says it's to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, just thinking about that, let me be clear. When it talks about visiting those who are orphans and widows, it's, it's not necessarily the same way we would say visit and like go have a cup of tea or sit around and watch TV or whatever. The, the concept is that we go to care for them. And in the Greek, the underlying tone is that we're going to help meet needs to provide for them. And notice that it calls us to enter into their affliction. You see, because widows and orphans at that point in time had very little way, if any way, to provide for themselves. There was no way that they could work. There was no way that there was a social welfare system. There was no hope except for the generosity of others. And so we're called to an incarnational ministry where we enter into their affliction with them and care for them. And we'll talk more about that. But let me stop for a second and say, historically, people have used this verse to kind of justify a social gospel. And that means the idea that basically what really matters about Christianity is that we just do nice things to poor people. Okay, But, but it's more than that because of that last phrase, which is so essential, keep oneself unstained from the world. You see, not only are we called to love and care for those in need, but we're to, called to do it with the heart of love that we've received from Christ. Right? We're to be incarnational in that ministry, not just meet needs, but to show them Christ. If you think about it, this passage or this verse really parallels the great commandment very clearly to love your neighbor as yourself and to love the Lord your God. Douglas Moo, in his commentary on James, which is excellent, if you want to study James, you need to get his commentary. And you probably will forget unless you write it down now. But you can ask me later. I'll tell you. It's really good. You will really enjoy it. And it's very accessible. But Douglas Moose summarizes this this way. And this is a perfect summary. He says, One test of pure religion, therefore, is the degree to which we extend aid to the helpless in our world, whether they be widows and orphans or immigrants trying to adjust to a new life whether it's impoverished third world dwellers, the handicapped, or the homeless. And that's, that's the picture in this verse. God loves and cares for the needy, and so should we. Now the second thing I'd like us to consider this morning is that favoritism is sin. Favoritism is sin. We see that in James 2, verses 1 through 13. Follow along with me. It says, My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. 
For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and you say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Can I tell you honestly that throughout my entire Christian life, I've read this passage, and my focus was always on the poor man, the, the poor little guy that comes in, you know? And it, basically, summarizing in my mind this passage is saying, don't be prejudiced against poor people. Don't treat poor people badly. Or, or maybe in line with the verse above it, you know, love poor people, care for poor people, be compassionate towards poor people. However, studying it this time, I, I realized that I was focused on the fruit and not the root, right? Because look, the root addressed in this passage is favoritism. It's partiality, right? Verse 1 says, My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And, and verse 9 says, But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. It's interesting the Greek word here translated show no partiality is used three other times in the New Testament. And every time it's used, it's used in connection with some way to God's judgment. Look at these with me. Romans 2, verses 6 through 11 says, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Ephesians 6.9, Paul writing about masters and slaves, says this, Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. And then Colossians 3, 23-25. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. 
For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Did you get that? The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Now, that, that gives us good reason to stop for a minute and consider just a personal warning that comes from understanding that God shows no partiality. Okay? When you stop and think about it, in the not very distant future, each of us is going to face a just judge. And there's nothing you can do to gain his favor, right? He, he can't be bribed. He can't be manipulated. He can't be charmed. And, and when it comes down to it, every one of our evil thoughts, words, actions must be punished. And there's no partiality with God. You remember we just read James 2, 9 and 10. It said, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So if you or I are guilty of ever showing favoritism or partiality, if we have ever chased after something or someone, if we've pursued them, if we put our hope on them, if we've set our affections on them in some way to gain some personal benefit, right, to, to gain some personal gain or, or our own comfort, then we're already convicted as guilty of breaking all the laws. And there's nothing you can do to earn God's favor, right? Because God shows no partiality. I hope that's a sobering thought. Now, there, there is one place in the New Testament that talks of God showing no partiality that gives us hope. Now, the Greek is a little different, but the definition or the, the intent behind it is the same. That's in Acts 10, verses 34 through 43. Look at this. It says, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, and with power, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one. He is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So the, the most important question any of us can answer this morning is this. Have you put your faith in the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus to pay for your every evil thought, word, and deed? Have you surrendered your life to his lordship? Are, are you seeking daily to walk intimately with him, to have an intimate communion with him? 
If you're not, you should be concerned because God shows no partiality. If you're not, but you would like to, please don't leave today without talking to someone. You can talk to me after the service. A number of people around you probably could help you, but talk to us. Let us be able to share with you how you can start that kind of relationship with Jesus, how you can find faith to be enough in his name to find forgiveness of sins. So every reason to notice a personal warning. But ultimately, this passage is a warning to the church. It's a warning to the church. You see, James is warning us, or at least reminding us, of the danger and the temptation of showing favoritism as the body of Christ. And it's not hard, I'm sure, for you to imagine these primarily poor, persecuted believers being tempted to to show favoritism, to pursue, to to fawn over, or, or set their hopes and affections on someone rich coming in, someone that could benefit them, maybe... Uh, you know, financially, but maybe it's also benefit them socially, right? Some social capital in a time when they're being oppressed. And yet, we see that their desire for selfish gain was causing them to show partiality to some, but then to dishonor or, or to look down on or to shame others. Their prejudice was a result of that pursuit of selfishness. Favoritism and and in turn prejudice is wrong for Christians in general and the church specifically because it does not reflect the heart of God. It it doesn't reflect the self-sacrificing incarnational love of Christ that's revealed in the gospel. So what that means for us is that we need to be passionate in battling against favoritism in the church. We need to avoid partiality and do whatever it takes. And it doesn't matter what that favoritism looks like. It might be favoritism in chasing after white privilege, but it might also be favoritism in chasing after Black Lives Matter. It's all partiality, and it has to stop. It might be favoritism in chasing after Trump or the Republican Party or Biden and the Democratic Party, right? It might be prioritizing those who are financially well-off or beautiful or trendy or young or talented, but it can also be focusing so much on the poor, the unattractive, the marginalized, the aging, those that seem to have less to offer. We can pursue both sides for our own benefit, our own comfort, to help our own conscience, to ease our own shame. The truth is, as a church, we have to be careful in any way to be seeking the approval or the benefits of the world by compromising on any biblical truth in order to support any worldly cultural issue. That could be gender identity issues, LGBTQ+, identity politics, critical race theory, critical social justice, all of those things. That favoritism has to stop. And I think we all know that there are believers and there are churches throughout our country and around the world. I'm sure people that you know, social media that you've read, but that are being driven by their favoritism on both sides of this topic, whatever it is, right? And, And they're waving one banner or the other, and ultimately they're motivated by their own selfish gain. And in the end, it leads to dishonoring someone else. Usually the person on the other side of the coin, right? And and so 
we have to be careful because in dishonoring the, the people on the other side, we're dishonoring people that are made in God's image. We're dishonoring people that might be the very children of God. In the end, when a church is driven by favoritism in whatever area it is, then the heart of God and the incarnational love of Christ and the message of the gospel is obscured or disfigured or undermined or outright denied. So we must be vigilant and, and fight passionately against any favoritism. Because the only banner that we as Christians can raise is the banner of Jesus Christ. The third thing for us to look at this morning, saving faith compels us to action. Saving faith compels us to action. James 2, verses 14 through 17. It reads, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Can I be honest with you? When I first started working on this sermon, my first point was this. You ready? God has a special and unique love for the poor and needy. Now, when I got to point two, that God shows no partiality, I thought, I'm going to have to revise point one. <laughs> right? But, but looking at it and studying it, the thing that struck me is that God's love for the poor and needy is so amazing, it's so overwhelming, because it's the same. It's consistent. His love for everyone is consistent. The problem is ours is not. Right? We're far too easily inclined to, to apathy or to an aversion of those in need. And I, I know if you're like me, it's easy to just be caught up in your own life, your own challenges, your own issues, and, and just to neglect to even think about the needs around you or around the world. Think about these 10 global poverty facts from Compassion International. One, more than 736 million people worldwide live below the poverty line, which, according to the World Bank, is living on less than $1.90 a day. Number two, child poverty accounts for half of the world's poor, with one out of five children experiencing extreme poverty. Number three, 11% of the global population suffers from hunger. That's one in nine. And one in three people is malnourished. Number four, one out of every 27 children will die before reaching the age of five, mostly from malnutrition and other preventable causes due to extreme poverty. Number five, one-third of the world's food is wasted every year. And if one-fourth of the food wasted across the globe could be recovered, it could feed 870 million people. Number six, some 880 million people live in slums and nearly 40% of the world's future urban expansion is expected to occur in slums. Number seven, every minute an average of 24 people are displaced from their home. Number eight, more than 21.3 million people, roughly the population of Australia, are living as refugees. Number nine, 
Roughly 84% of people experiencing extreme poverty live in sub-Saharan Africa or South Asia. And number 10, by 2050, four out of every 10 Christians in the world will live in sub-Saharan Africa. So by 2050, 40% of the Christians in the world will live in a place with the greatest poverty. Now, I can confess to you, I spend 99.9% of my life not thinking about those things at all. I, I, I just don't. Now, by God's grace, I consider myself a compassionate person, a generous person. As a matter of fact, we're, we're a compassionate and generous church. If I was to tell you this morning that there are people in our church that are not sure how they're going to afford to buy food or afford to pay for their housing, they're not sure how they'll afford medicine or, or to find transportation to or from work, you would give generously to those needs. I, I know that. I've seen it happen. Our family has, has personally benefited from your extreme generosity. But I need to tell you, all of those things are true right now. In our church body, there are people that are not sure how they're going to buy their food. There are people that are not sure how they will afford housing or afford medicine or find transportation or deal with some other financial crisis. Now, my desire is not to make you feel guilty, but merely to point out that my natural tendency and maybe yours is just apathy. It's just an aversion. I, I'm not really actively pushing into people's lives, trying to see if there are needs. I'm not even actively asking God to show me those needs and enable me to be a conduit of his blessing. And truth be told, if, if I come across needs, it's really easy to just paraphrase, paraphrase James 2.16 as God will provide or, or I'll be praying for you. Instead of being moved by the sacrificial love of Christ that I've received, to give sacrificially to those he loves. Maybe you're tempted, as I sometimes am, to think, I can't afford to let saving faith compel me to action. I'm barely getting by as it is. I'm one of the needy. But just let me remind you, James here is writing to believers that are facing poverty and persecution, and yet he's still calling them to display the gospel by visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. Truthfully, none of us is living on $1.90 a day, right? That's $693 a year. Now, I know that there's a difference in cost of living in different places, and I know that there needs to be a sliding scale, but the reality is even the poor in our country are so much richer than the poor almost everywhere else that whether it's financially or whether it's in our time, whether it's whatever the case may be, we're all called to let saving faith compel us to action, especially to our brothers and sisters in Christ and to the church and around the world. Which brings me to the last point for today. The last point. Suffering is a canvas on which the gospel shines brightly. Suffering is a canvas on which the gospel shines brightly. James 2.18 says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. I will show you my faith by my works. That's where I got the summary sentence for today. Gospel is what we display. 
You know, one of the challenges with government welfare or social justice, critical social justice, all of those things, is that the goal is to create a government system that eliminates in any inequality in financial condition or standard of living or possessions. However, we know from Scripture that that's not going to happen. In, in Mark 14, 7, well, uh, Mark 14 we read the story of Jesus, and you remember he's having dinner with some people, and a lady comes in, she has an alabaster flask with expensive perfume in it, she breaks it, pours it on his head, people get upset, and then in verses 5 through 7, it says this, they say, for this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her, but Jesus said, leave her alone, why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me, for you will always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you'll not always have me. You always have the poor with you. Deuteronomy 15.11 says it this way, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Have you ever stopped to consider that no place in the Bible do we get a, a command or even a formula of how we should set up a social welfare system, how we ought to get the government together and put it in place and let them take care of all these needs you know, as much as the world focuses on trying to eliminate all suffering, including poverty, that's clearly not God's plan. There is a heaven, but this isn't it. Right? There will be a time when God takes care of all of these things, but, but it's not now. Poverty and suffering are a result of living in a rebellious, fallen world. But there are also consequences that God not only permits in the world, but also in the community of faith for our good and for his glory. Look at Deuteronomy 15.11 in context. It says, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. And you remember earlier, we looked at Matthew 25 with the sheep and the goats. And Jesus continues that and says, Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you in? Or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Even in James 2.15, it said, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. Right? The implication of these verses is not only will poverty and suffering continue in the world, but also in the church and the community of faith. And that God's plan is not to eliminate it, but for his children to willingly enter into it and walk with one another and care for those who are facing poverty or whatever type of suffering they face. You see, we're called to do incarnational ministry, to do what Jesus did for us. We don't ask our poor brothers and sisters to come to us for help. We go to them. 
We don't ask our brothers and sisters in Christ that are suffering or oppressed to come to us. We go to them. We don't ask them to become like us. We become like them in order to live out the life of Christ with them, living life on life, living out the gospel. See, ultimately, it displays the gospel for the watching world, and it invites them to experience the community and the communion of Christ firsthand. Because suffering is a canvas on which the gospel shines brightly. John 13, 34 and 35 says, A new commandment, this is Jesus speaking, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And then Jesus in his prayer in John 17 is praying and says, I, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you love me. Brothers and sisters, I believe without a doubt poverty and suffering will continue until Christ comes back, both in the world and in the church. The question is, will we spend our time chasing after the next cultural solution like critical social justice or critical race theory all to no avail, or will we do it God's way? Are we willing to set aside our apathy, our self-righteousness, our self-centeredness, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, enter into the poverty, suffering, and need of our brothers and sisters in Christ, both here at Maranatha and in sub-Saharan Africa? Are we willing to give joyfully, generously, and sacrificially of the resources God's entrusted us as well as giving our very lives. Because if we're willing to do those things, if we're willing to, to see the love of Christ lived out, then the world will see it. They'll see a self-sacrificing, compelling community. And Jesus and the gospel will be gloriously displayed and lives will be eternally changed. In closing, let me leave you with this encouragement. Galatians 6, 9, and 10. It says, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are the household of faith. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for you are a good and a gracious God. You're generous and your love is overflowing. Father, we cannot even count the numerous blessings you've poured into our lives this very day, let alone day after day after day. Father, help us. Help us to love you enough to love each other. Help us to love you passionately enough to live generously, to give of our lives, to be willing to give sacrificially so that the gospel will be displayed gloriously and lives will be changed. Father, we thank you that you were willing to do it first. Let us live for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have a great day.